Thank you very much. Here at the SF Music Tech Summit. Thank you very much for coming. I want to introduce the panel here at 3 o'clock. Panel discussion today, the new SF Jazz Center here in San Francisco. I'd like to first introduce Kitty Margolis, award-winning jazz singer, and Randall Klein, founder of SF Jazz and the executive artistic director. Thank you. Thanks, Marshall. Welcome, everybody. It's great to see you. Everybody looks so smart. Before I introduce Randall, I want to offer you a short description of a magic night we had earlier this year in San Francisco, not too far from where we're sitting. On January 23rd, I attended San Francisco Jazz opening night, concert and gala, celebrating the boundary-breaking $64 million new jazz center. And it was amazing. It's, it's our nation's first standalone jazz venue, jazz center. We'll talk more about that. But really, it was an electric night. Fell Street in the heart of the city was closed off, tented, and VIP guests entered on a red carpet to an explosion of paparazzi, flashbulbs beat of a funky New Orleans band, movie stars, deep pocket philanthropists mingled with the who's who of jazz, music journalists from all over the country were there scribbling notes for articles that would come out in the New York Times, etc. And many of the nation's top jazz presenters were there kind of jealously looking around, curiously looking around. It was all really good natured, but people were really envious of what we've got. And so we mingled over New Orleans food from the best restaurants in the city, lots of bourbon, and then it was showtime, and we all went into the beautiful new hall, and Bill Cosby was there as our MC and introduced a real who's who of jazz musicians that have associations with San Francisco Jazz Organization from the venerable Chick Corea to the scene stealer Esperanza Spaulding, who won Grammy Artist of the Year. The Bieber Stealer, we like to call her. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was amazing. And by the end of the concert, the consensus was that San Francisco Jazz Center is a jazz hit. And it's my distinct pleasure today to be here with Randall Klein, who's a very old friend. He's the founder and the executive artistic director of SF Jazz. How about a nice welcome for Randall? Thank you, Kitty. And I just want to say one more thing. We've known each other, you know, since we were neighbors in North Beach in the late 70s. And I think I headlined at your second Jazz in the City Festival in 1984. Mm -hmm. And I think I even have a vague memory of you playing bass behind me at some club in North Beach. Do you remember where that was? It was um, actually in Mill Valley. Mill Valley. Sweetwater? Uh, Sweetwater. Wow. <laughs> when I was uh, setting up produce next door at uh, Living Foods. And on my break between... Uh, Stacking oranges. I took my green apron off and uh, played bass. And, uh, <laughs> Do you remember what song it was? I can't remember. Well, you were playing with Joyce Cooling. That's the only thing I can remember. Yeah, everybody remembers that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you know, let's get right to it because we don't have that much time. Since it's so new, can you give us an overview of the SF Jazz Center, what it offers to the public and to musicians, how it came to be? Okay, I'll go quickly, but it's uh, 35,000 square feet. It's on the corner of Franklin and Fell Streets in San Francisco. New architecture uh, built from ground up. The project's been in sort of gestation for uh, about nine years. 
a lot of fundraising to get into it. It's all privately fundraised for. Actually, we're not quite finished with the 64 million. We're about just just shy of 60. We got four million more to raise. One lead gift kicked the project off. A 20 million dollar contribution. It's something that's been in the mind of SF Jazz almost since Kitty played on that second festival, and over the course of time, just kept moving closer and closer towards trying to figure out what might be the best. How to, how to build the best venue for jazz you could build was this kind of audacious way we approached it, and we got lucky. We built a beautiful place. There's a 700-seat theater that's uh, flexible in a number of ways. It can be flexible in size. It can go from 700 to 500 to 350 and look like it was meant to be those sizes. It's flexible in configuration. It can, there can be a dance floor uh, that gets removed from the, the bottom uh, the area around the stage. You can be standing or dancing around there. There's a smaller room called the Joe Henderson Lab that holds about 100 people that's used for rehearsals and smaller performances. Our education, a lot of our education programs take place there. There's a restaurant run by Charles Fon of Slanted Door fame. And the whole idea of the building is to be part of a vibrant neighborhood that's easy to get to, easy to park in, and easy to look at. And so that uh, this music can be a little more accessible and a little more welcoming. And uh, we've tried to elevate every aspect of the experience we can, uh, particularly starting from the theater itself with, with the sound in, the, in both of those rooms, actually, which are quite uh, outrageous, uh, if any of you have been in the room, but the clarity of sound like um, I've never heard in any other room. Well, you just covered every question I had. <laughs> but we can go into some more detail because a, a lot of people envision the small club as a setting for jazz. And it's a typical setting. And we've got this big 700-seat auditorium, the main room, I mean the big room. How do you manage to keep it so intimate? I've been to a few concerts there. What What is the secret of the intimacy there when you designed the hall? There's a long-winded answer to this, which was there was a lot of research done looking at halls where where they made sort of best use of space. But the primary thing we were going after was we, we needed a certain number of seats, but we also wanted to build intimacy. We didn't want to build a concert hall that felt stiff, but we knew that we didn't want something too informal as far as uh, the club experience. So we tried to come up with a, a shape that felt like a community room. And so we looked at a lot of different models beyond theaters and a lot of found, you know, what we, we called found spaces in the, in the sort of research phase and looked at a lot of places obviously here in the Bay Area, but we also looked at a lot of particular places in New York where a number of the team that worked on this project, the acoustician and the architect had seen a lot of music um, that weren't necessarily traditional jazz or music rooms, um, you know, places like the, the Brooklyn Lyceum, which used to be an auditorium, and a club called Barbez, a tiny place. We were looking for vibes more than we were, um, you know, and particular setups, but the feeling was the most important thing, where you experienced music and that sense of intimacy, because the art form that we work around, you know, really works best, well, as most music does, when there's a, a better conversation between audience and the performers, and both feel very comfortable where they are. And that presence of the musician being very present in the room was a huge thing. One of the models is one you wouldn't think of, which was a church, uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright structure in, in Chicago, outside of Chicago in Oak Park, uh, called the Unity Church, our Unity Temple, which is a Unitarian place of worship. But our our hall is almost the exact dimensions of that hall, and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright believed that to be sort of perfect gathering space dimensions. And where, and, and in that particular church, where it's a less hierarchical worship, and the and that the, there's a more communal experience rather than a preaching 
kind of experience. It feels that way in there, and the, the, the angle is, the pitch is pretty steep, mm -hmm. so there's not a bad seat in there. Everybody feels close. Um, I'm just curious because there are so many different, we'll talk about the programming in a minute because it's so varied, but there are so many kinds of music that you present from, you know, louder, softer, really acoustic to pretty jamming, um, rocked out stuff. I saw Jason Moran with um, Michelle Degocello and that was very funky and mm. it was the Fat Sweller dance party. Very, very funky and cool. Um, how do you deal with the different types of acoustics um, presented on the stage from the room? Are there different treatments in the room? Well, this was one of the things. The acquisition was a guy named Sam Burkow, a company called SIA Acoustics out of Los Angeles in New York. And Sam, you know, d laughed when I first told him what we, uh, we, we were hoping to accomplish in the room. So, you know, it's impossible. We wanted something that worked as, uh, as purely an acoustical hall, that if a piano player wanted to give a, a recital or, you know, or a jazz piano wanted to play unamplified, they could. Um, and if we had something, you know, on the level, I think the Roots was the example we used. You know, we looked at concerts we had done in our sort of past history that was really very bass heavy and loud and, and how could you make those things work in the hall. And so it's a very complicated acoustical design, also a design that really, um, of the hall itself, but also the sound system, which is a, you know, a Meyer system company, you know, great company based here locally that Sam had done a lot of work with. So he designed a, a room that worked with a sound system that uh, reproduced sound at its sort of most natural and transparent. And we got, you know, we, we got a kind of a little lucky in that sense that uh, it, it sounds, you know, fairly equally well in both settings. There is one variable acoustical element in it. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a, it's an acoustical curtain that drops on the upstage wall behind the stage that you can't see. There's, there's, a, there's a slat, wood slats that run around the entire uh, auditorium. Uh, but behind that stage is something that, that will cover a, uh, a wall that disperses sound and reflects sound to to absorb sound, and that's for particularly loud things. That's how we can control some of the louder stuff. So there is some movable element there. Yes. Yeah. Invisible. Invisible. But, but audible. Yeah. That's what we care about. Um, well, the Joe Henderson Lab, I, I, I taught the first vocal jazz master class in the Joe Henderson Lab, which is the 80-person space, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and the sound was quite amazing, I thought, because I was expecting, I don't know what, but it's all of a glass room, transparent to the sidewalks. So, you know, when you see squares of glass at right angles, you always think standing waves. And there were no standing waves, and just the opposite. It was a very warm sounding space. Um, and I want to know, how did you think of that that room interacting with the outside community because I was also nervous about people walking by and making faces in the yeah. window and that I wouldn't be able to concentrate, you know. And then I found out, of course, when you're teaching, you can concentrate. You don't even, you're very laser beam focused. But how do you feel that that room interacts with the sidewalk and the people in the community outside? Well, that was kind of a tail wagging the dog request. I mean, the sense that we wanted to have a room that really connected with the street and that would, when people people walked by or drove by, they would see exactly what happens in the room. And there's another place where it actually happens with a big theater. There's, a, there's an entry into the theater that has a windowed view all the way to the street so you can see what's going on. But this room is really you know, crassly open. And it, literally, it's like a front porch on the, on the building. There's glass on two full walls all along, um, 
Franklin Street and on the alley on Linden Alley. And it's floor-to-ceiling glass on, on two full sides of the room. Actually, three full sides of the room because it's glass to the lobby side as well, too. Uh, and the, the acquisition, Sam, again, one of the reasons we hired him was because of our challenge of glass. We knew we wanted this glass. He had worked, had done the acoustics at Jazz at Lincoln Center, which has two, two rooms with huge amounts of glass. One is another floor-to-ceiling um, glass structure behind uh, the stage at one of the rooms there. So he knew what to do with it. And there's some, just a couple little tricks that, that, that are done. One of the tricks is actually to angle the gas, glass slightly at certain places so the sound reflects up into the ceiling. And then the, the ceiling treatments uh, control the sound waves. And there's some kind of like port, some kind of port or something I heard from one of your architects that it kind of disappears into... Well, it doesn't fully disappear. So the the, the, the floor itself is isolated, has an acoustic isolation. There's a rubber, um, you know, isolated floor service to absorb bass frequencies, which can cause a lot of those standing waves. Uh-huh. And, and um, there's treatments up in the ceiling, and the and the and the other wall, the main wall, has a lot of stuff. Uh, and the, if we wanted to mitigate it further, there are some acoustical shades that can come down part way too. But we actually we've tried those, and they're not necessary. So nobody's used the curtains yet. We used them a little bit. We had actually Marcus Miller do a work shop in that room played with a small trio really loud and I thought we might need that but in fact it was the greatest test of the room we brought them down about one third of the way and only half of them and it was perfect Marcus Miller being a very loud electric bass player one of the best of course but not soft so yeah, yeah. so since we're at SF Music Tech and you know we're not all necessarily the biggest jazz fans we might be emerging jazz fans but we're definitely all tech oriented Let's talk a little bit about the new media and how it plays into your plans at SF Jazz, digital, lab, social networking, any of that. Well, a few things. I mean, the building, you know, we're building in a time where you can't ignore any of this. But the main thing we're trying to figure out sort of digitally is just how to capture and how to broadcast and and do in the best possible manner. Jazz is a particular medium that, you know, you have to figure out how to sort of capture with, with, and economically is the other issue to do that. So we built the build, we, we built the entire building, the two rooms, plus there's uh, four practice rooms as well too that can serve as isolation booths if need be. But all the rooms are connected via fiber optic cable and there's a really strong digital backbone to the entire building and there's a couple of broadcast suites where we can send out that opening night was broadcast live on NPR Music. So that went out as a stream and also as, an audi- as audio on the NPR affiliates. That came from a broadcast suite that we have upstairs, and all the signals end up up there, and then it gets, can, a number of things can happen there. The sound can get recorded. There's a Pro Tools rig up there. That take, it's a 48-track board that can actually be expanded to 96 if we need it, and then there's also a, a video suite up there, and there are going to be eight digital cameras in the main room and four in the small room uh, that we're going to do. We're, we're experimenting with the programs to sort of mix on the fly in those rooms. So you can do a TV mix up there yes complete and so i because i i did a little um reconnaissance on my facebook page just to see if anybody had any burning questions for you and some of the questions that came in were that there were 
rumors of SF Jazz Radio and SF Jazz TV. And so this streaming that you did for that opening night, I was attending, as I said, the opening night, and then I watched the stream later. And it was fun to do both, mm -hmm. just like when you go to the Grammys, it's fun to watch the Grammys on mm -hmm. TV. Um, and it was you know, radically different being in the third row where mm -hmm. I was than it was watching it, mm -hmm. and both were great. Are you having any plan for regular streaming, or is it just yes. in the works? Yeah, we have plans. We don't know what they are, but we do have plans. And we're exploring all sorts of avenues of how, how we're going to do this. Basically, we're building, we're, we're working with different, actually some, some camera companies and things of trying to do some things that we, we hope will be moderately innovative in there and trying to capture. But, we, you know, the key is to try to capture and deal with all the rights issues that are attendant to everything right. in, a, in a fairly economical way and try to be able to distribute it as broadly as we can. Well, it's really exciting, and that leads me to um, talking about your programming, which has been really innovative um, with multimedia performances featuring, for instance, the music of Bill Frizzell and the works of Allen Ginsberg and Hunter Thompson, performances by Jason Moran featuring actual skateboarding, which is like, I didn't get to see that, but I really wish I had. Dance music, as I mentioned, inspired by Fats Waller. Ha give us some idea of the thinking behind your programming. It's, it's so different. Well, we've, got, we've had a, a sort of 30-year history of programming fairly eclectically. And one thing we did differently in this building when we, we figured out that it was going to get built was how we were going to program it, apart from you know, I, I'm in charge of most of the programming that goes on in the building. But um, should we um, bring in a, an artistic director, a guest artistic director? We brought in five, actually, is what we did, and tried to have cut sort of as broad a swath into having all these different kinds of voices that could be in the building. So the Jason Moran programming was the product of his, he's one of the resident artistic directors, and he has two weeks of programming that he's in charge of that is to be Jason Moran-centric around projects that he wants to do or, or artists that he feels are worthy of another look or a different kind of a look. Um, you know, Regina Carter's another one of those resident artistic directors. You know, she explored a lot of, you know, fiddle music of different kinds. So we had the Cal Carolina Chocolate Drops and we were exploring, you know, Appalachian music uh, during... Uh, that period uh, when she was there and different kinds of southern music. Um, Miguel Zanon is uh, playing this week. He starts on Thursday night and all four of his programs are mostly related to Puerto Rican music uh, and, and different programs each night. And what we get, um, Bill Frizzell is another one of the artistic directors who did you know, these two crazy pieces yeah. with, with text with you know, uh, Tim Robbins reciting Hunter Thompson's The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved and uh, Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish, when another two performances, and, uh, and John Santos, another Bay Area artist who's one of those artistic directors. And we get, we get a lot of variety just by virtue of having this open space, and because we have a, a history of, of, of a more open viewpoint, the artists feel very comfortable within that. And you know you get directly compared to jazz at Lincoln Center because it's the other white meat mm -hmm. on the East Coast, but you know, very, very different kind of programming. Um, and you're obviously different because you're the first standalone, standalone being mm -hmm. the operative word, they're uh, in the Rockefeller Center, not Rockefeller Center. Um, they're in the Time Warner building. Time Warner building, so they're not standalone. Wynton Marsalis is the, the artistic director, mm -hmm. right, of, of yes. Lincoln Center. Oh, and actually Jason uh, O'Lane, who was in uh, charge yes. of programming for Yoshi's for many years, is actually now uh, doing the, the head programmer at Lincoln Center right now. That's great, because he's one of our homeboys, and we love Jason. 
really good friend. So, you know, we have some more minutes. I have more questions, but I know that you guys have some questions, and it'd be much more fun to get this to be a little more interactive. So does anybody have anything they want to ask, Randall? You mentioned that you have a funding goal for to, to build the physical location, that you, you had an initial donation uh, that, that sort of started off of $20 million. And from what I understand, that's related to the tech community, that sort of the relationship between the, the Jazz Center and the physical location and the surrounding community. We're here at a tech conference today, and it, it really struck me as sort of a rare opportunity that some, some key people in the tech industry were supporting a very specific music effort. And I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts of how we might be able to spur more of that really direct relationship between local music and technology. So it happened pretty organically in our case. I mean, we, you know, everybody who's trying to create business opportunities or raise money for projects, you know, obviously looks to the tech community here. It's the most successful in the world. Uh, there's lots of opportunity here. But we eventually, we had a donor who uh, was the number five employee at Yahoo, uh, who eventually became the chair of our board. And she was very instrumental. Her name's Srinija Srinivasan since has left Yahoo. And she saw, she was a big jazz fan, so she had an affinity for what we did. And that, that kind of, that was, that's the organic piece I'm referring to. She loved what we did, and she saw lots of parallels between the tech industry and this particular art form. This sense of risk-taking and innovation and small groups working together. And there was a synergy between how the Silicon Valley worked and how jazz worked. And she you know, gave that speech to many Silicon Valley compadres of hers as we went along. So, you know, our board actually ended up with a number of, you know, important people from the Valley on there and all of them personally gave money themselves and also connected us with other people as well too. And they saw something, you know, the interesting synergy between the Valley and San Francisco is, you know, the it's kind of one and the same now. The reverse commute, I think, is worse than the commute yeah. than it is now coming back. A lot of those companies are now headquartering in San Francisco as well too. So, they view San Francisco as sort of their home turf. And some of the bigger gifts came from you know, older tech, actually, as mm -hmm. we got into this. So. Anybody else? Yes. I think you touched on this. Um, the uh, facility is booked quite a bit of the year with your own events, but you also make the theater available for outside groups and producers to rent. What's your vision of who that would be and how that would work? It can be anybody. I mean, ideally, you know, we want it to be, you know, ideally music community. So one of the things that's happened in the Bay Area as far as music and, and performance goes is uh, one of the main venues that a lot of uh, chamber music presenters presented in, in a hall we used a lot. Herbst Theater is closing for close to three years. Uh, so all the people that rented that theater, we rented it 40 nights a year. Uh, but groups like San Francisco Performances and City Arts and Lectures and Philharmonia Baroque and a lot of people that use that hall will we're making that our hall available for rental. So about, say, 120 nights a year are available for rental in the big hall and similar numbers in the smaller hall. And there are different rates. There's nonprofit rates and commercial rates. You know, this past week we had three, you know, rental events in the daytime, all commercially oriented towards businesses. I think this week we've got a, an artist doing a, you know, who's rented it for a CD release party in the small room, the Joe Henderson. One of my students. Oh, one of Kitty's students. Excellent. That's how he got there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't blame me. So the building is, is open. I mean, the building's open to lots of things, too. We teach a lot there as well, too. So we've got, you know, you know we do a lot of master classes. Rebecca Mollion, the 
great piano player, he, uh, lives here in the Bay Area, is our director of education, and we've got a lot of programs that are geared towards, you know, from middle school kids all the way through adults, too. But it is open for rental. So get out your checkbooks, because there are a lot of different spaces. We had a, a Grammy mixer there, Meet the Board Mixer, and we pretty much hung out in the upstairs bar with a balcony overlooking. It was a warm night and a beautiful place to have an event. So keep it in mind for your tech parties. Yeah. We had the great uh, rap musician uh, Leon, Leon Panetta in the building last week. He was great. <laughs> <laughs> Who actually, no, he was there at another conference. Not, not a rapper, though. <laughs> sort of an old school rapper. Well, then let's talk about now that you've pulled off this incredible project Okay, interrupt me, Katie. <laughs> How are you handling your ticketing? Good question, a good tech question, actually. Uh, we handle it uh, through a, a program that was designed by the Metropolitan Opera. It's called Tessitura, and it's used... Uh, they developed it because to coordinate their uh, marketing and development departments so that all the data from ticket buyers, many of whom were subscribers or donors to the place, it's been in existence for you know, about 15 years, and a lot, of, most every major arts group in the country uses this program. Actually, the, the Met licenses it to, uh, out, and it's a community of people that work together to sort of strengthen. It's a great program for for us, at least. It's a great. You know, we can do pick your own, you know, pick your own seats and all th all sorts of things. And the program keeps developing as uh, you know technology changes and people want more from from that program. But it captures a lot of information. Uh, you know, almost every touch if someone has with the organization gets tracked through Tessitura. And how are you using non-cash um, promotional social media to push the message out? Like, do we have a hashtag? Do we have a well, Twitter I'm sure, feed? Sure, we're pushing out on Twitter. I mean, the, the organization has Twitter and Facebook feeds. I've got a, an SF Jazz, SF Jazz Randall Twitter handle and all sorts of stuff. We push out a lot of photographs, go out there through um, Instagram as well. Do you well. do your own tweets, Randall? I tweet. You tweet? I tweet. I got to get on your Twitter feed. <laughs> I have a Twitter feed. I have like about 190 followers now. I'm really working it. <laughs> <laughs> so feel free to sign up well, one of the most, for all of us. Actually, on the, on the social media side, one of the things that actually has been most interesting for us has been um, YouTube. And we have a, a band of our own called the SF Jazz Collective that we commission to write original music every year, and they tour internationally. And... Uh, we had f four of their, um, we had four songs produced by Jack Conti, who I think is speaking here today as well, too, elsewhere, who, uh, the, uh, who's got a group called uh, Pomplamoose, as well as doing his own stuff, a really great innovator in the world of music and video and new media. Um, but the conversation that happens as a result, th th those videos were, we thought, a great you know, viewed video from our own world was 10,000 views. We're up to, um, you know, pushing over 800,000 views of those videos right now that, that Jack produced for us. And what's, it's a different style of shooting jazz for one, but the most important thing from these things is the conversations that happen uh, on YouTube and that we can answer and we can talk back. And, and that's been uh, the platform we're actually looking to, to move sort of mm -hmm. the most to because that's where we can have the most sort of visceral conversation with people. It's the way of the future for, for all of us to bring the show to the people out there as well as have it live for the people in here. And you've got the right setup. I've got to say, you know, it just feels so good in there. And there's a restaurant 
by the way, um, Charles Vaughn, who runs the Slanted Door and some of the other good places in San Francisco. I see some appreciation for Charles mm. Vaughn. He has a southern restaurant called South, and they mm -hmm. feature food from New Orleans, and it's pretty good and great cocktails, good bar. Um, we're we're going to be there pretty soon for a poetry reading. I think that's the next thing we're yes. going to. Um, yeah, we've got a week of a poetry festival that Ishmael Reed is curating, four nights coming up, starting a week from Thursday. In the smaller room. So, you know, there's a marquee with flashing names, with LEDs, and seeing the names of some of my heroes down there in the Arts District moving horizontally across the building is so inspiring to me. You know, as a jazz artist and a lifer in San Francisco, I can't tell you how much it means to have this place. San Francisco jazz was nomadic for 30 years and working in places like Herbst and Grace Cathedral and now to have our own kind of, I won't use the word church because it's secular, but it's its like a jazz church. I mean, for us, it, we're just so proud of you for pulling this off and so happy to support you. It makes me really emotional to be sitting here with you 30 years later. We were just kids when we met. And you know, there's this grand thing ahead of us that makes me very proud to be a San Francisco jazz artist. So um, if you don't have any more questions, let's have a really big round of applause for San Francisco Jazz Center. Randall Klein. Thanks, Kitty. Yeah, <laughs>